Genesis 45, verses 1 to 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so we have come, nearly, to the end of the book of Genesis. We have followed our cast of unruly characters from Abraham and Sarah and their laughter to Jacob and his scheming to Joseph and his dream. Last week we saw Joseph's rather startling rise from prison to top man in charge as he interprets Pharaoh's dream about a famine and suggests that Pharaoh find some wise and discerning man to ensure that enough provisions are stockpiled to last through the famine. Pharaoh decides there's no better man than the one standing in front of him, and Joseph is robed in splendor once again, with an entire nation bowing at his feet. And it turns out that Joseph is really good at his job. For the first seven years, the cities across Egypt fill their storehouses with enough food to last them through the famine, a famine that comes sure enough and spreads also to the lands around Egypt, including Canaan, the home of Jacob and his sons. 
Hearing that there is grain in Egypt, Jacob sends the eldest ten of his sons, not Benjamin, to buy grain. And little do they know that the man overseeing the markets is none other than the brother that they sold into slavery. Changed as he is by his Egyptian clothes and customs, the brothers don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. And Joseph decides to test his brothers to see if they have changed from the men who wanted him dead. He accuses them, first, of being spies and throws them in prison for three days, eventually keeping Simeon in prison while the other nine are told to go home, retrieve Benjamin, and return with him to prove that they were telling the truth about having another brother at home. So they do this, and they return the silver that Joseph had snuck into their bags. But Joseph isn't finished with them. He sends them home again, but this time he places a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And when it's discovered, he demands that Benjamin remain with Joseph as a slave. Now at this, Judah begs for Benjamin's freedom saying it would destroy his father's life to lose the son that he loves. And Judah commits to stay in Benjamin's place. Judah has changed. The brothers have changed. And so at last, Joseph makes himself known to them. And they are terrified. Understandably so. If I had tried to kill my brother and then sold him into slavery, and then 13 years later I show up begging for food and he is the one in robes of purple and gold and in charge of just about everyone, I would be quaking in my boots. Surely, surely the brothers are about to meet their end. Surely Joseph is about to get his revenge, to throw them all into slavery, to imprison them to see how they like it. Surely vengeance is coming. Come close to me, Joseph says, and the brothers do so with fear and trembling. But then, the Bible is full of but then moments, and this is a pretty good one. Do not be distressed, says Joseph. Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was not you that sent me here, but God. So go get our Father and all of your households and come to Egypt where I can provide for you. I mean, that is an astonishing statement. That's a pretty surprising statement. Unless, of course, you are Joseph. And finally, after 13 years, you can see how God has been at work leading to this very moment unless you have the faith to believe in a sovereign God. Because faith is all that Joseph had in those 13 years. There's a line 
in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, where the narrator assures Joseph as he sits in prison, I've read the book and you come out on top. But in reality, Joseph had no way of knowing how his story would end. He had no way of knowing what God was up to, how things would turn out. He did not know how his story, how the sentence of his life would end. (coughs) At the end of his book, The Alphabet of Grace, Frederick Buechner talks about the Hebrew alphabet. Now, one of the super fun things about the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew language, is that when it's written down, it's usually written only with consonants. There are no vowels in the words. People rely on the oral tradition, on their own hearing of and understanding of words to fill in those vowels so that when they read a text, they kind of can assume what the words are. They can make sense of the words, filling in the vowels as they go along. And in his commentary on this passage from Genesis, Doug Bratt points out that sometimes our lives read like a series of consonants. Hard-edged events that leave us wondering how to make sense of things, how it all hangs together, how we are supposed to read the story. Just this last week, a lot of my conversations with people have revolved around that question. How do we make sense of all of the things happening around us? There are fires and natural disasters seemingly everywhere. COVID just keeps coming back. Politicians aren't inspiring a whole lot of hope at the moment. We're trying to figure out how we're going to pay for gas and groceries and rent. The war in Ukraine still rages. Closer to home, loved ones die too soon. Family members are seriously injured. Jobs are lost. Relationships are strained. Depression looms. And one of the things that we're often tempted to do in these messy moments is to try and force the vowel, to try and make sense of everything that is happening while it's happening, while we're pushed up against that hard consonant wall. And we look for for answers. Sometimes we fall prey to conspiracy theories, or we exacerbate conspiracy theories, or we, we lobby accusations, or we look for people or for systems to blame, all so that we can find the vowel. So we can find the letter, the the answer, that will help us make sense of what does not seem to make sense right now. Or we try to theologize it all. We try to figure out what God might be saying to us through all of this. Is God punishing us? Is he warning us? Are we in the end days? And the idea of looking for what God is doing is not a bad impulse. It is a tricky one, though, because we believe in a sovereign God. We believe that God is in control of all things. But that leaves us with some questions, doesn't it? 
Does that mean that God causes bad things to happen? Or does he just allow bad things to happen? This is the mystery people have been trying to answer for millennia. How is God sovereign over a world filled with war and forest fires? What does Joseph mean when he says, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God? Did God cause Joseph's brothers to sell him? Or simply redeem the circumstance? Well, Walter Brueggemann, a theologian a whole lot smarter than I am, says that the answer to that question lies somewhere in between both questions. God knows what will happen, and yet also gives us free will. God does not directly cause evil, and yet works through, in spite of, and against evil, supplanting the evil intent with good. And somewhere in between all of these seemingly contradictory statements is the mysterious sovereign God. And this, says Brueggemann, is the central claim of the biblical faith. The ways of God are not the ways of humans. And scripture doesn't spend a lot of time trying to explain to us the ways of God. After all, in the Joseph narrative, this is one of the few times when God is even mentioned. So, says Brueggemann, (coughs) At the crucial turns, the narrative moves abruptly and tersely, refusing to reflect on cause or method. And that is why story is the proper mode for this faith. It never lingers to explain, but only recites and retells for the wonder found in the telling. It does not linger in Genesis 1 and 2 over the miracle of creation. It does not linger in Genesis 18 over the new birth of Isaac. It does not linger over the gift of rain in 1 Kings. It does not linger over the way a blind man sees. It does not linger over the amazement of Easter. Biblical faith affirms and moves on even when we would pause to analyze and explain. It will linger to relish and discern the wonder, but never to explain. And so, says Pastor Stan Mast, we don't have to be able to solve the theological mystery in order to celebrate the victory of God's gracious plan of salvation. In the end, God wins. And we communicate that truth. We celebrate that truth through story. By sharing what God has done in our lives. By telling stories, we provide the vowels passing on words of faith from generation to generation so that when we come face to face with some hard-edged consonants, we know how the story reads because we have heard the story before. 
We have heard the story of Joseph, the brother sold into slavery who ends up saving a nation. We have heard the story of Esther, forced to marry a foreign king who then ends up saving her people from slaughter. We've heard the story of Paul, imprisoned, shipwrecked, flogged, who can yet say God's grace is sufficient for me for his power is made perfect in weakness. We've heard stories like that of of Chuck Colson, embroiled in a Watergate scandal, but who comes to faith in prison and goes on to found the Prison International Ministry. We've heard the story of Malala Yousafzai, who is attacked as a young girl for her pro-education stance in Pakistan, and because of this receives an international outpouring of support, allowing her a massive platform to promote female education and rights. And we know, we know the story of Jesus, the Son of God, arrested, beaten, and hung on a cross, betrayed by one of his friends, handed over to die. But even here, God did a new thing. Jesus was raised from the dead. When all seemed lost, God did a new thing. What some intended for evil, God used for good. By his death, we are saved. And this is what God keeps on doing in the lives of Christians and in the lives of non-Christians. God is working out his purposes for the world. Which is, in the end, the great story of Genesis. That what seems like an end barrenness, jealousy, treachery, slavery, what seems like an end is with God a beginning, a genesis. God creates life out of death. He is the alpha and the omega, those great vowels that begin and end the alphabet that begin and end the story, our story. Hindsight allows us to tell our own stories. Looking back at how God used certain events or people or times in our lives to show us his continued faithfulness and providence. And the Holy Spirit uses those stories, the telling of those stories, to instill in us, to encourage in us, the gift of faith when we're in the middle of the mess. When we're up against the hard-edged consonants, when we don't know how to make sense of things, hearing the stories of God's faithfulness in the lives of others helps us trust that there are yet vowels, that God is yet writing our story. One of the questions that's come up a couple times in these conversations this week is whether things are so much worse today than they used to be, or if because of the 24-hour news cycle and social media, we're just that much more aware 
of all of the bad things. And I think the latter is certainly true. Our days are permeated by bad news, by stories of despair and destruction and hopelessness. And as Christians, we are called to go into those messy situations, to strive for justice and mercy and hope there, to seek restoration, to get messy, to use our hands and our feet to carry forward God's purposes in the world. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for our apathy. God does his own work, says Brueggemann, and at the same time fully honors the work of his creatures. So it is with Joseph and his brothers. They did their free work, but in the end it was God at work in their work who brought life. And so we are also as Christians, called to be storytellers, bearing witness to the God who brings life. We are called to remind the world that the bad news does not win, that the despair is not the end of the story, that there is a God who is yet somehow working out his purposes in the world. John Lennon once said, everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. I'm convinced he did not know how true those words really are. We wait in hope for the day when Christ returns, when the new creation is finally realized, when there is an end to tears and to sadness and to death, and to despair. We await that end, which is really a beginning. But in the meantime, in the not yet, we trust that the kingdom is also already. That God is here, at work in our lives, filling in the vowels, writing our stories, giving us the eyes of faith to see this is Christ at work in me. So what are your stories? It struck me this morning that uh, a month from today is Thanksgiving weekend. And I don't know about you, but my family, we go around a table and we say the things that we are thankful for. And I encourage you this year to think about, over the next month, what are the ways God has been at work in my life? How has God handed me vowels to help me see where he has been present in my life so that we cultivate a practice of storytelling, of sharing our own stories of God's faithfulness with each other? helping each other to trust, helping each other to see where Christ is at work in each of us. Would you pray with me? And so, holy God, give us eyes of faith. Help us to see your hand at work in our lives. As we look back over our years, or over the last few months, or, or just the last few days, 
And then give us the courage to share what we have seen, to be storytellers, witnesses to your presence, so we might lead people to hope, so we might encourage each other and ourselves to trust in you. Thank you, God, that you bring life and you bring it abundantly. We pray all this in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.